Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Joe Edelman, a philosopher, social scientist, designer, and founder of Human Systems, a global community for those redesigning institutions and social spaces as to better support meaningful lives and human values. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. It's good to be here. So, Joe, for, for those who, who may not be as familiar, we're about to go you know, down a... you know near a two hour journey into uh, some of the main ideas behind your work. But if you were to try to, in the beginning is to just sort of set the, you know, set the framework or or set the table, so to speak, uh, set the scene, sort of give your sort of most succinct explanation for your unique mission, unique goal, or your unique take, or if you were to try to summarize that, what we're going to talk about the next two hours into two minutes, how, how would you start? And then we'll go on the various threads from there. I've long been interested in, um, the ways that, the current systems or structures uh, really deliver and the ways they don't. So it's really easy to get your uh, car fixed or to get a haircut. Um, This is a way that capitalism and existing technology really work together really well, but there's, it's much harder in situations of what I now call human values, like situations where you want adventure or community or love, or you want to live a certain way. This is a place where the market doesn't really serve us. Uh, Technology is often undermining the way that we want to live. And my whole kind of career has been about trying to figure out why that is and try to figure out how to build systems that serve in these areas that current systems, like our, our current technological landscape and markets, seem to undermine. Totally. And you spent the you know, last decade plus really you know, thinking about this, immersed in it, and then building you know, uh, practices and institutions around it. Why don't you trace a little bit of the, the evolution or of the journey of, you know, at first, did you think it was you know, people-focused or institution-focused? Or how did you sort of how did you say, how, would you trace how your ideas or, or even modes of how you should approach the problem have evolved? Yeah, sure. So I started getting interested in this uh, working uh, at Couchsurfing. I developed the metrics that ran Couchsurfing and I thought of it while I was at Couchsurfing at, as um, a kind of an alternate economy. And that was my first frame was that there was something wrong with the market. I still think that's true, but, but it, my, my idea was just that there's something that we do uh, as friends or as communities outside the market that helps us live the way that we want and build the kinds of relationships that we want. And I just, thought that we needed a different kind of economy. So maybe that was like a reputation economy or a gift economy or an adventure economy was a term that I sometimes used at Couchsurfing. And so at Couchsurfing, I was building this social network and trying to make the kind of economy at scale that I thought would help. And I think I made some progress there, but not as much as I hoped. We had, I worked, uh, Casey Fenton was the CEO, and we talked a lot about what we called then big life or the adventure economy and the idea that the internet would kind of completely change the way we lived and that we would, I don't know, just live these lives of adventure, meeting whoever we needed to meet and coordinated in this kind of global, like instant social network. Uh, This is in some science fiction 
it wasn't necessarily original with us, but we were very excited about a kind of utopian vision about what the internet would do. And it didn't do those things. And so after that, I started reading more sociology, economics, trying to learn what I didn't know before about what it was about current systems that made it harder for people to live in this fulfilling way, and, what and, uh, alternate systems would look like. And say more a little bit, uh, why didn't the internet achieve some of those promises? And, and maybe is, is Airbnb versus Couchsurfing a microcosm example for you that might you know, illuminate trends beyond that? Totally. Yeah. So the way I would say it now, uh, with the terminology that I use now is that, uh, we're really good at shopping around our goals and preferences, and we're really good at networking and relating around our goals and preferences. So if I, uh, prefer a certain kind of blue jeans, I can shop on Amazon or whatever and find exactly this type using, you know, all this, I've learned all this, you know, sizing information and I can specify color and I can specify shape using all this terminology that I've learned about the shapes of different pants. <laughs> right. So I have terminology for my preferences. that's very, very specific. And it's similar. If I want to travel to Rome, I know how to book the tickets. I know what to search and Google for that, etc. And we're very bad at shopping for our values. Uh, so if I want to live uh, more adventurously, or let's say I have a more specific value, like I want to practice uh, loving people in a way that lets us both change and develop over time. Uh, so this is a very specific value. Where would I plug that into a search engine? This is like, how, how articulate do I need to be to even be able to name this, this value that I have, right? This is kind of unusual. Uh, compared to the precision with which we can name our preferences or goals. So there's something about articulacy and the sort of shopping experience. And then there's something about ways of connecting. Like we have good ways of connecting around goals like um, contracts where you help me with my goal and I pay you. Uh, and we don't have such good ways of connecting, scalable ways of connecting around values. So that's how I would characterize it now. And this is why Couchsurfing had to kind of trick people. Our values were things like conviviality and community, but we didn't advertise that. Instead, we said, find it, find a cheap place to stay, find a free place to stay, travel the world. These are goals. So we would trick people and then we would provide these values. And that's why people felt really good about it and felt like that's why Couchsurfing had such a positive brand. But ultimately, we couldn't compete with Airbnb, which sold spaces that match people's preferences, which is something that people are pretty good at shopping for and pretty good at arranging their lives around. So what do you think, uh, just to make concrete for a second, what did Airbnb do differently than Couchsurfing that enabled it to optimize for preferences and goals in a different or better way? Sure. Airbnb focuses on space. You see pictures of the space that you're going to stay in. Couchsurfing focused on people. Couchsurfing focused on this like mission and what, what we were trying to deliver with Couchsurfing, what we measured in our metrics was deep life experiences, conviviality, like people having a great time together, uh, growth, people meeting someone that really changed their perspective, this kind of stuff. And we were able to build a network that provided that. Like we are, those metrics went up and to the right and people loved it. I mean, these were some life-changing experiences, but in the end, people know how to 
un, they understand the the shopping process and the sort of success process of finding a space that's suitable and going and staying in it and just getting this goal done, like this goal of I need a place to stay in this other city done. This is a much an easier value proposition, even if it's less ultimately valuable uh, in our current society. Yeah. And, and why do you think um, our systems are better d- uh, at designing for goals and preferences r- rather than for values? And what, what could it look like to, to do a better job of optimizing for values? Is it institution-led? Is it person-led? Or how, do, how does that happen? Yeah, I, th- I think it's both. I think there's a kind of a loop where something like the fasted search that Amazon has or the search bar that Google has helps people get more articulate about their goals and preferences, right? You think, oh, which which kind of blue jeans do I really want? Do I want to fly by train or take a bus? Um, is seat space more important to me or price or something? There's a sort of interaction going on where existing systems are training people to get more articulate and that articulacy makes it easier for them to use the system. Um, And we would need a similar kind of resonance between values, articulacy and systems that deliver on value. But I think before that we need good measurement. One of the things we have really good measurement, for instance, for affluence in our society, which broadly measures the ability to to satisfy your preferences or accomplish your goals, like how wealthy you are. But we have very little good measurement on life meaning and where people feel like they're able to live meaningfully and where not. And this broadly measures people's ability to live by their values. Uh, so I think I, th- I kind of think that's one of the things that we need first, because there's, there's sort of a, an awakening going on. There's a lot of discussion around meaning. It's There's a lot of, energy behind UBI, for instance, Yang or Jordan Peterson is about life meaning. So there's kind of a shift in the popular discourse from affluence towards meaning, but there hasn't yet been a shift in what we can measure and what we can deliver and what we're articulate about. Yeah. Zooming out a little bit, and you've written a bunch about this, but why don't you uh, talk a little bit about, about how you define values and how you how it you know overlaps or, or you know differentiates between other ways? You know, I, I was curious in your view how much it, it overlaps with Marshall Rosenberg's sort of you know needs construct or, or you know the goals and values construct related to the sort of strategies versus needs construct in NVC. Yeah, one place where I, I differ. So I'll take that as two questions. First, where I differ with NVC, and second, the way that different people use the word values. With NVC, I think it's hard to say what. Rosenberg himself thinks, or what he thinks now. But what's popular in the community is an idea of people as kind of basically the same, kind of wanting the same things, to be loved, to be understood, to contribute. Uh, There's, in fact, like a small list of universal needs that's part of the NBC kind of handouts and things. I think this is an oversimplification. I think that people actually want to get substantially different they, they want to, their desires about how to treat other people and how to live together, um, how to focus on their projects are substantially different. And a lot of the good information and what makes life so interesting is our differences and how unique our values are. So this is a difference between 
what Rosenberg calls needs and what I call values is I see this diversity of different values. And I, I think that's really important to honor. And it's, it's a lot of wonderful information that you get from acknowledging that actually this other person that you're talking to, uh, rather than focusing on, oh, we're just trying to get the same needs met. And we're basically the same. We just have different strategies for them, which sort of suggests that the important thing is needs and the strategies are kind of ephemeral to say, oh, actually you value one thing and I value another thing. And, and um, maybe we can learn from each other. I think this is a, a kind of a better frame. Yeah. Right. So Marshall was saying, or NBC saying, hey, we all have the same core needs. And if we just, you know, uh, align on that, then we can, you know, it's just much easier to, to get along. And we're saying, no, no, our, our needs actually may be in conflict or we may have different needs and they may be contradictory to each other. If we can better understand that and appreciate it, we can be creative in co-creating solutions to better, you know, uh, incorporate both of those. Is that, is that something like that? Yeah. I, I also prefer the term values to needs because I think that um, uh, needs, the word needs is kind of crafted towards this reduction, like the idea that we have basic needs. Um, and that's like the, the main important thing. But if I want to be uh, wildly creative in a way that's often unbounded by rational concerns and you want to be like deeply present and loving, um, neither of those are necessarily our basic needs, but they're different values that are actually kind of really exciting. Like it's exciting to acknowledge that diversity and to say, oh, how could we be part of a community that offers opportunities for wild creativeness and deeply present loving. How can, what can we build together? I think this is a, a better view. Totally. Do you want to take this, the second question? Oh yeah, sure. Well, the main thing is that the word values in English covers what I might call societal values and personal values. And I don't think these are the same things at all. I'm really concerned with how someone has decided it's sort of the best way for them to live through their own trying things and experimenting and the people they admire and their appreciations. This is what I call personal values. Societal. So this would include the examples that I gave before, but how somebody wants to live. Social values or societal values, things like equality, democracy, Freedom, freedom can be either like I can have a personal value of trying to arrange my relationships to uh, keep myself free. That would be a personal value. But freedom is like a kind of a ideology about uh, how to construct a society. It's just a very different kind of thing. And I think it's really confusing that we use the same word for both. And one of the first things that I do in, when I teach is try to really separate these terms. I call things like freedom or equality ideological commitments um, or norms. And I call the other things personal values. We try to use this terminology. And I found that using this terminology, things clear up for people. There's something about the fact that we use one term that is actually confusing. And people get less confused when they uh, force themselves to, to separate use separate terms. Totally. I want to get into a lot of the the, the, the classes and, and the human systems work that you do, but, f- but first I want to really focus on the values because it underlies a, a lot of that work. 
why don't you zoom out a little bit and talk about some of the ideological underpinnings or intellectual you know, foundations for how you how you perceived values? What, and, and maybe we can then get into how it sort of maybe differs from any other sort of schools schools of thought here. Yeah. So I think of values as a very concrete thing that a person can use as they live making choices and interacting. So this is kind of close to, to the way that economists, microeconomists use the word preferences or the way that we talk about plans or um, principles or something. It's kind of like an idea that you have that as you go through the world, you're like, okay, well, what's my plan here? Oh, I was going to go to the store next. Uh, so we kind of all agree that plans are, are real, like that they exist somewhere in our mind or brain or whatever, and that we use them as we live. Like we make plans and then we <laughs> we execute on plans and occasionally we revise them. So I use values in, in a way that kind of fits with that. It's a different kind of plan in a way. It, it's a idea that guides how you interact. So when you're talking with a friend, uh, maybe you decide to be honest or tactful or to see the positive in them. And those are all kind of the values that guide your interaction. Um, and this, uh, term, this way of using the word values comes from a bunch of philosophers in the part of philosophy that's called the philosophy of choice, theory of choice, philosophy of agency. The, the, it seems to start with this guy, Charles Taylor. So this is mid 20th century. He, he didn't call them values. He called them strongly evaluative terms. And then there's a bunch of folks afterwards, um, Elizabeth Anderson, uh, David Vellaman, Ruth Chang, uh, eventually Amartya Sen, uh, that some of them use the word values for this, some of them not, but everybody kinds of agrees. Everybody agrees that there are these ideas that we use to uh, evaluate different are uh, have a lot to do with what we think is important in life. And Amartya Sen used, I think he used the term capabilities. He's talking about the social values there. No, no. Yeah. Oh, so I think uh, Sen and Martha Nussbaum, uh, both of these uh, philosopher economists, they use capabilities and functionings for more or less what I call values. But I think they're, it's a little sloppier. So I would say that David Vellaman and Ruth Chang, and a lot of my work is kind of plugging the Vellaman-Chang idea of values into some frameworks that uh, Sen and Nussbaum came up with. And, and how would you put this sort of intellectual foundation in comparison with others that are the, the credible ones uh, that are uh, either you know somewhat different or very different? For example, earlier before this podcast, we were talking about uh, the key kind of, uh, uh, you know, five you know stages and, and then spiral dynamics, maybe that one is as, as a different example or, or how would you sort of create a mini, you know, mini map of, of some of these? We're talking about how people make choices, something like this. And there's a whole bunch of fields that try to contribute psychology, developmental psychology, microeconomics, um, uh, neuroscience, uh, and so on. There's a lot of them, actually. Philosophy of mind. Um, and each of these different fields use different criteria to judge whether uh, a paper or a proposal uh, about how people make choices, whether that's behavioral economics to like to judge whether some theory is correct. So 
a behavioral economist like um, Kahneman coming up with thinking fast and thinking slow is going to be judged differently because they're because he's in behavioral economics than uh, someone in microeconomics like like Gary Becker or um, someone in philosophy like um, the people I mentioned before. And I think the philosophers and the microeconomists kind of have the best methods for discerning whether a story about how people make choices might be true or not. Um, the philosophers mostly try to come up with counterexamples. That's their main method. Like, oh, that couldn't be how, like, let's say your arm is flapping around and you don't feel like you have any control of it. Does that still a choice under your definition that you gave? Like they sort of argue in this kind of legalistic way. And I think that's actually a really good way. The, the counterexample way is a really good way of figuring out how people make choices. And another way is to look at data and talk about consistency. And this is more what a microeconomist would do. I think these are better methods than current neuroscience methods, uh, current psychological methods for sure. And when I, when I learned about economics in school, the, it, was, it, was, it was basically like people have preferences and what people do are their preferences. <laughs> and what, what I hear you saying is, hey, you know, there are preferences and their values and, and people may act on those preferences and, and they may not be in coordination with values. And what, you know, the internet or, you know, certain tech companies have done is sort of prey on people's preferences at the, the uh, at the expense of their short-term preferences at the expense of their values. And we need to both become more aware of our values and also create uh, technologies that encourage the people to, to find their values and act on their values. Is, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I think that preferences are to some extent a kind of a phantom. For most of the 20th century, preference in economics has meant revealed preference, which is just what people actually do. So by this definition, even if I do something I really regret, that was still my preference, which is kind of a weird way to use the word preference. But this is how economists have been using the word preference. And so I think this, this sort of points to the inadequacy of this word preference. You have to break it down and you have to say, okay, well, which part did I feel good about and which part did I not? Which part of that decision, like let's say I um, order blue jeans from, from China, like what part of that was important to me and what part wasn't? Like Because by the idea of revealed preference, just like everything about what I did, like pressing the enter key and ordering them from China specifically and so on is all kind of part of my revealed preference. Like I revealed preferences for all of those things. I revealed preference for shopping at a certain time of day, <laughs> but, but probably only some of that is important to me. Right. And so you need some other terms. You need to say, Oh, well, part of this is uh, habit. And part of this is what I really value. And part of this is, uh, it was actually kind of a forced move, like because I uh, only had five minutes uh, that day. And so I couldn't find the blue jeans that I really wanted. You, you need to be able to break it down more than the word preference does. And so how else would the world change if people fully appreciated or academia fully appreciated or technology companies fully appreciated uh, this, this construct of values? What are some other things that would be, be radically altered as a result? I think that in societies where people mostly have, mostly can meet their, their needs and the needs of their children and where there's, where consumer spending is on things like entertainment or luxury goods or whatever, 
this includes a, a lot of the U.S., even quite poor parts. Like if if you look at people's spending and it's not just going to rent, but it's going to apps or Xbox games or something like that. Uh, this All of this spending would shift in the direction of meaning because I feel like most entertainment, most luxury goods are actually tricks in a way. They're, they're something like, oh, we can't give you real adventure, so will you give you an adventure game? We can't give you the kind of relationship that you really want, so we'll give you a sports car. But I think if we had good systems for getting people the kind of relationship they really want and real adventure, we'd see a shift towards like a very different kind of lifestyle, lifestyles of real adventure and uh, loving relationships and so on. This would also be one that was much less individualistic because in general, mostly we can't live by our values alone like because so many of our values concern how we treat each other and how we live together so you would see a lot less individualism a lot less entertainment a lot less uh, of a luxury market much more community much more of, of this kind of meaningful living yeah. And, uh, and also much, yeah, much more emphasis on wisdom. I'll also say, because I think that once you start living by your values, you have this kind of question of like, Oh, are there other values that I'm not living by yet that are really cool? People, there's already in, in a way, like the self-help market is people trying to find wisdom, but this is fairly poorly organized. So this would also be much more in demand and much better organized. Help me understand better what sort of the meaning economy or wisdom economy would look like in a way that's different from today. Because I understand sort of the luxury market. I understand, you know, sort of, you know, Kim Kardashian reality TV or sort of Miami Beach, you know, nightlife or, or you know, endless sort of just TV in, in general. Um, help me understand what, uh, what, how the meaning economy or wisdom economy might be different in terms of where dollars are spent or... Yeah. So, I mean, I think there'd be much more, we've lost a lot, especially in the U S and um, the UK, there's been uh, atomization, a loss of community, and these would be rapidly rebuilt. So you'd have um, neighborhoods where there's some kind of affinity where people are sharing in uh, uh, childcare, doing like playing sports together. There'd be much more of this kind of like local community, a kind of a reinvention of, uh, village life uh, inside, um, or ideally the best parts of village life without the worst inside of uh, cities, housing would be reorganized. Uh, workplaces would also be dramatically different because there'd be much more of a premium on meaningful work, work that's either you know contributing somehow or where the workplace itself and the dynamics within the workplace are extremely fulfilling or where um, the craft or the artistry is extremely fulfilling and there'd be very good ways of assigning people to the workplaces that would work for them. So I think these two things like living structures, workplaces, community life, these things would maybe that, does that give a clearer picture? Totally. Would for like things like soul cycle or Barry bootcamp, or I don't know, people are all trying to have sort of these uh, new, like, you know, community like spaces are those types of businesses that would emerge as a result? I, I kind of think that maybe in a, in a transitionary period, but things like SoulCycle are attempts to 
to some extent, it, it might be a real community. To some extent, it's a kind of facsimile or, uh, or co-working or, or some kinds of co-living are still very much in the... So one of the values that, it, or the sort of faux values that's created by, by the sort of infrastructure of current capitalism is modularity, is uh, liquidity, is uh, plug and play. And so you want, if you have a franchise like SoulCycle, you kind of want it to work for anybody and you want for somebody to be able to like come and like have like, maybe they feel like they have a community, but the the ties are actually fairly weak so that they could go to a different SoulCycle, you know, some other day or whatever. So you have this kind of franchise liquidity in terms of spaces, in terms of, uh, you know, population. And I think we would move very rapidly away from that. I think that uh, for most people, stronger ties afford much more of this kind of meaning. And so if there was anything like a franchise, it would be very different. It would have much more internal heterogeneity and much less of this kind of modularity plug and play aspect. But aren't there like, I think McDonald's is an example or maybe some other where it's a franchise, but each, you know, like the McDonald's in China looks very different than the McDonald's here. So like, are there, is that a solve where there's franchise or brand, but each sort of local place has their own flavor on it? Or do you mean, you know, no, just like different, (laughs) different entities or different orgs in that way that are locally created? Well, if let's think about co-working because this is maybe a a, a clear example. So co-working is sold as a community thing, but in practice, what it is is a very transient set of relationships where any particular coworker or co-located startup or business or something might just be there for a short time. You don't have the sense with the other people that you're co-working with that you depend on each other, that you're building a long-term like partnership, that these are the people that you want to spend your life with or whatever. When you talk about like building a business, you talk about like, these are the people that I want to, that I want to work with day and day, day in, day out. Coworking is kind of the opposite of that, right? It has this sort of plug and play weak tie structure. And that, that would have to change. Like real community is not like that. Real community is not plug and play. You can join real community and you can build real community, but it involves much more of decision process much more of an intake process it's much less low friction much more high friction but current market dynamics trade off meaning you get less meaning for more of this low friction high liquidity and that balance would change you know one thing i'm sort of curious is how you think about you mentioned heterogeneity how you think about sort of diversity in, in community. You know, if you look at communities like Israel or communities like Norway, I don't, I don't know, or Singapore, uh, certain uh, cities or countries that have small, you know, that are much more homogenous, but are, are and, and really bind together over that. As, how do you think about, and I'm curious whether, the, you know, the utopia in your view looks like, a, you know, thousands of those or more like, I don't know, America, you know, a while ago, you know, where, where it's all, you know, immigrants. How do you think about, homogeneity and heterogeneity within within communities some of my favorite communities have had really strong shared values but have been really diverse demographically i used to go to quaker meeting which is like a kind of christian church but it's kind of a radical christian church 
And one of my favorite things about this, about Quaker meeting where I went was the diversity of people there. There's little kids and grandparents and people from all sorts of different racial backgrounds and so on. But everybody was really into sitting in silence and reflecting on their life. And so there was a, there was a, there was a very strong unity there too. And I think this is true in all sorts of different kinds of chosen communities, like jazz music, for instance, has a pretty rich diversity, uh, especially in a place like in Europe, jazz is super diverse, but everybody's into jazz (laughs) and trying to become a better improviser and so on. So I think we'd see a lot of that. There's a ton of maybe demographic diversity, but there's some kind of value specificity. Yeah. The, I mean, it is interesting you know, because people talk about diversity in the same way that when people talk about decentralization, there are you know, different different kinds, right? And so and you, you, have, you have a post on three kinds of diversity. There's diversity of, of, of backgrounds, you know, there's diversity of, uh, of sort of goals and desires and diversity of, I guess, what's meaningful to the group, I guess, where you would, you would say values. And mm-hmm. yeah, is there a question, you know, do teams that have diversity of, of backgrounds work better? Do teams that have like diversity of thought, I guess that's what, I don't know what people say, what mean when they say that, or are they saying sort of goals or, or values or I guess, how, how do you think about when, when you're building teams? Which, I think it's important to have shared values, um, especially aesthetic values and moral values. Uh, so it's, I think that's a, a thing that can really unite uh, a collaboration is if people share something in aesthetics that they're trying to get to some elusive, beautiful aesthetic that they're all into or um, some kind of moral virtue that they're all questioning themselves about. I think this is really binding. And I think that also we're, we're kind of, because we mostly know how to build collaborations around goals and often teams get in trouble because they have a shared goal, like having a startup, but different values. And then they get into all these fights, even just about aesthetics, but also about moral things or exactly how to work together or something. So I think there's like, we we could learn to build collaborations less around shared goals and more around shared values. So when people talk about wanting diversity of thought, in addition to diversity of background, what are they... I, sometimes they're talking about like different political views, like different, like different, you know, neuro, like uh, skill, neuro ways of thinking. What do you think they're talking about? And should we be optimizing for that in addition to diversity of backgrounds? Well, there's also, there's a lot of things that I don't talk about much like beliefs and skills, knowledge. There's, there's a lot to be said about even just plain old division of labor. Like somebody really knows, I don't know, like the, the, the current, front end tech situation and all the browser variations of CSS or something. It's great if I don't have to know that. (laughs) And so this is a kind of diversity that just kind of makes sense to have many different uh, skill sets or knowledge bases to draw on with a group. But I think this is kind of orthogonal to this question about uh, values, goals, identities. For people who are trying to figure out what their values are. You, you have a two-part series called uh, What the Hell Are Values? Um, and you say that they are improvisation guiding, hard to live by. You say that they are attention directing, importance recognizing, and good life constituting. Good life constituting is the most straightforward. But why don't you describe a, a little bit about some of the others in, in ways that might help people uncover their values? 
I think, well, so I'll sort of come at that a little differently. What I found is that people are most confused between values and norms. And there's a lot of words, including all the, 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 the words that come to mind first when you ask somebody to, to say what their values are, tend to be words that actually bundle together values and norms. For instance, if I want to be professional or I want to be creative or smart, these are all things that have some value aspects and some norm aspects. Some of being professional is just like what I've learned looks to other people to be professional, maybe dressing a certain way or shaking hands or so some of being professional is, is a performance. And some of it is maybe something that I is really important to me. Like um, maybe uh taking other people's time seriously and being grateful for it is more how just how I want to live. It's not a performance. And so my suggestion for getting clear about your values is start with some words like that and try to break them into these two parts. Ask uh, which part of this is a performance? How am I hoping to be seen by other people? And then which part is just how I feel like living or how I feel like my life will what what makes a good life for me. And so if you break up these kind of bundles into norms and values, you start getting very specific names for your values, names like I've um, been using so far. And this I think is the fast path to values articulacy. Totally. And and I'm, cu- I'm curious if you could articulate maybe a, va- a value that you, that you have and also maybe how your values changed over the last few years or as you've sort of had this construct of values, how have you seen any one of them evolve? Oh yeah. They're, they're changing all the time. I can give a lot of examples. I used to value something like responsibility, like doing what I said, setting expectations, right. Now I have this other value that I, I just call facing people. But what I mean is like at the end of the day, like acting so that at the end of the day, I feel clear with everyone that like, I feel good about how I've been with everyone in my life or everyone that's important to me. So this is a little different than just straight up responsibility, which is what I had before, which is more about like, was I saying that I would do something and doing the thing that I said now I'm more like, do I feel good about who I've been with this person? And is there anything in our relationship that I, I can't own or something? It's a more detailed one. Or another example, uh, this one I use in one of my essays. I used to try to build effective teams that would try to get kind of everything done, maybe done at a high quality. And now I try to build um, teams with uh, high capacity. So that like uh, risks, difficulties, uh, problems within the team, problems with the project, big new ideas can all be handled well. And this is a little different than building an effective team. Totally. I'm curious how you think about values in, in, in the context of, uh, of emotions. And you've written a bit about sort of the, the primacy of, of emotions. And I want to run through how I've sort of been thinking about it recently and, and hear where you, where you differ, where that resonates. So one is technically some, some people have described emotions as sort of 
you know, tools given to us or, or tools that we you know, developed you know, because of natural selection that helped us uh, survive and reproduce in sort of previous eras, uh, prehistoric time. And that there's a lot that is similar in today's world than in previous world, but there's a lot that's different. Like, you know, we don't need sort of, you know, road rage, for example, is, uh, doesn't really make sense uh, today, but maybe that same instinct did, you know, back then or, or wanting sugar, uh, or, or things like that. Um, so one is that even on the axes of, of survival and reproduction, there's not total, um, overlap in the sense that we should really trust all of our emotions or instincts there, but then also, uh, and this is what sort of Buddha diagnosed is that those are somewhat at odds with, with our happiness at, at sometimes, uh, in terms of, you know, they're, they're, they're designed or developed to, uh, be very fleeting. And, you know, once you have them and sort of, and then this sort of endless desire for, for more. So I guess, how, how do you react to that? And then I guess, how do you sort of see, uh, emotions a, as guides or with the caveat that we today have been, you know, been told to or educated to ignore our emotions or repress our emotions, perhaps far more than my description should have implied we should. We should. Yeah, sure. So, so first, I want to say that, that I may have a more narrow definition of the term than, than really like fits all of your examples. For instance, a craving for sugar, I wouldn't call an emotion or a compulsion to do something like um, uh, the kind of compulsion that an obsessive compulsive has or something, attraction, aversion uh, from Buddhism, I wouldn't call an emotion. So I mean, when I talk about emotions, I mean more narrowly things like anger, fear, joy, grief, these sort of like the kind of standard set <laughs> rather than anything we can experience. I do think that there's a lot of things like the craving for sugar that, that maybe just don't fit. But the things that I'm calling emotions, I think are, are wiser. And this can be really hard to tell because some of our emotions aren't about the present. Like the word trauma is often used for this. Like some of our emotions are too big because of things that happened to us in the past. So we're kind of, I, I think of it as like we're experiencing two things at the same time. Like, um, you know, if we got rejected by our parents or had some kind of early traumatic rejection, then later when you get rejected, you're kind of experiencing some current rejection and some older rejection. And so this makes it feel a little bit like our emotions are illogical or wrong or something. But I actually think that even the old part and definitely the new part is kind of wise. Like there's a message left over from that rejection that we never figured out. Like the emotion is like a signal, like kind of like signals in Unix that that kind of alerts us to something that we could learn or, or more precisely a way that we could adjust our priorities. And uh, if we have an old emotion, like a traumatic emotion, this is a kind of a signal we never received. And if we have just a current emotion, uh, like I'm afraid, uh, that, and let's say that's just about the current moment, I think this is usually wise or often wise uh, in that there's something that that fear, experiencing that fear is going to change my priorities. Uh, let's say I notice that there's a deadly scorpion on my desk next to my laptop and I get afraid, there's a very healthy change of priorities going on, right? Maybe at a moment uh, before I was working on an essay 
And that seemed like the most important thing. And now because of this fear, I've reoriented. And so I think all the emotions are like that. Positive emotions reorient us towards something good, roughly. And the negative emotions reorient us not away, actually, but towards something else that's good that we're not getting. It's like missing. So if I'm ashamed around how I'm uh, maybe around a uh, somebody that I haven't been or embarrassed that I, I wasn't honest with somebody, this is redirecting me towards the idea of being honest. So it's raising that in my priorities and lowering whatever my, my you know previous priority was. So I think emotions in general do this job of uh, rearranging our prioritization or what's salient to us in our current activities, raising one value up that we maybe weren't paying attention to if, uh, if it's a negative emotion, if it's a positive emotion, maybe it's just encouraging us to double down on whatever brought us joy or excitement or love or whatever. And do you think it's been a different way? Do you think that emotions are sort of a tool in the toolkit, you know, next to sort of reason or logic or thinking analysis, uh, you know, what other people think, et cetera, or do you think they sort of, they are the, they are the toolkit. And I guess another, and then one counter I'd have is like, what do you, what do you think about when do we not listen to our emotions in the sense of like, you know, the joy that some people experience about revenge or schadenfreude or things like that. So it's really, it's a complicated question. Uh, if somebody's, so there are, you can have a bad value. I don't talk about this very much because I think that most people's values are really good and right. And the best thing to do is to help people live by their values. But some people have values like being ruthless. I think this is still their best idea about how to live, even if it's kind of wrong. They've just decided that in this world, you need to be ruthless. And this was what will lead to the best life. And so kind of to the best of that person's knowledge, that's a good value. But maybe from an outside point of view, we think actually they screwed up. Um, So they might have a uh, feeling of uh, exhilaration in living ruthlessly that we might from the outside think, oh, that's their emotion misleading them. But I think it's not really. I think it's their emotion. One way to interpret is their emotion is guiding them wrong. Another way to interpret it is that they haven't been in situations that would lead them to deprecate their value of ruthlessness and adopt a value of, you know, interdependence or care or something like that. And so I would tend to look at that not as a problem with their emotions, but that as a problem, but a problem of like, maybe they're a trader, like an investment banker, and they've, they live a life that involves a lot of ruthlessness and their emotion is guiding them well, but it would be nice maybe if their environment was different uh, and that then their emotions would lead them towards a different set of values. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it does imply sort of, yeah, that Schrodinger or, or joy of revenge are not sort of true values or not. And yet, no, I, I don't, I don't think that I, I think we're sort of making a, a value judgment there. And the question is really like, are they doing what's best for them or what's, and it might be like, because you can, you can easily imagine at least as a thought experiment 
a society in which the best way to live is to be ruthless. I mean, Moscow is more like this than San Francisco. So why shouldn't someone feel good in such a such an environment in living the way that's best, let's say, for their family, right? So maybe like, let's just imagine a kind of a dystopian Moscow where, where you just have to be ruthless and this is the way that you can provide for your family and get ahead. If that's the case, why shouldn't that person feel good about that? It's more like, oh, let's make less cities like that. That's more the issue, not like, oh, their feelings are wrong. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, that, that makes, makes sense. So let, let's transition into hu- human systems a bit in the, the, the work that you're doing. So, so, so how do you describe you know, the classes that you're offering and, and what the goals of them are and then how you want this org to, uh, this org to evolve? Yeah, so we currently, currently we're like an education operation, and I think it'll be like that for, for quite a while. My goal, our goal is to convert different kinds of current social systems, some social networks, markety democratic systems like blockchain stuff with voting and land use and, and market replacements, um, organizational processes, all these different kinds of systems. Some of them are in code, some of them are in practice or policy or law, all these kinds of systems to convert them to values aware values responsive ones to redesign them. Um, and so we teach people to do that. And this goes through a few stages. It starts just with this issue of values, articulacy, separating values and norms, learning to name your own values, uh, moves pretty quickly from that to interviewing already by the second. So the first two hours are kind of about getting clear on your own values. And then the next two hours are learning an interview technique to start being able to gather other people's values with high precision more precision than usually they would be able to have themselves without being interviewed. And what's the crux crux of that technique? We have a few different ways of doing it. Part of it is just about being clear between these things that I've called values, norms, ideological commitments, so that you can kind of zoom in for them on the stuff that we call personal values. Part of it is understanding emotions as a signal of what might be important to them. So you ask them about, about their positive and negative emotions to get information about this. Another way is looking at choices they made and what the choice reveals is, is important to them, either when they were able to live by their values or when they weren't, which co- corresponds more or less to situations which were really meaningful for them or situations that weren't. So yeah, you can start from all those different places end up narrowing on people's values. And they, this is really rewarding for people because people love it when you're able to say what's important to them more precisely than they've so far said it themselves. They feel really seen and they feel like you really get what's important to them. And then if you're able to deliver on that, they feel understood in a way that is, is unusual. So that's the first part of the class. And then we go from there to looking at where people's values work out and where they don't and doing a kind of social analysis, like an analysis of relationships and larger systems and where uh, strategic thinking or uh, norms or ideological concerns crowd out values, make it harder to live by values. 
where they support values, where just the structure of the environment supports people's values and where it doesn't. So that's kind of the phase two is this kind of analysis of existing situations and systems. And then the third uh, stage of the class is, is redesigning systems, starting with the easier kind of like in-person systems, like organizational processes, like uh, interview processes, uh, dates, <laughs> starting with, with the easiest kind of uh, systems to redesign to be better for people's values, and then moving upward in scale to democratic systems, larger scale systems that have more like other concerns that need to be balanced with uh, issues of meaning and values. And, and just, just a word on the analysis uh, part, where, when and where do values get crowded out and why? There's a lot of different reasons that it might be hard to live by your values. Uh, th- there's two, two main kinds of reasons that we focus on. Um, one we call crowding out and one we, we call difficult parts. We have these terms for them in the class. So crowding out is when something else becomes more important to you than living by your values. For instance, for me on Twitter, I struggle with the kind of self-expression that I might want to, and the, like the ways of talking that I might want to do on Twitter and issues of virality and reach and kind of the more marketing aspects of Twitter because there seems to be like a real contradiction and I haven't yet found a way of satisfying both my values and goals about my image and how I represent myself and getting followers and stuff like that. So there's a, there's a crowding out effect where I'm less likely to be able to use Twitter in the way that I really want to, treating people the way I want to, interacting the way I want to, expressing myself the way I want to. I'm less likely to, to be able to focus purely on my values because I'm crowded out by these strategic concerns. So that's one kind of thing that can happen. Values get crowded out, not just by strategic concerns, but also by norms. Like this would be a situation where, um, uh, say, professionalism in the office, there's a norm of professionalism and this might crowd out people's values about self-expression or creativity or warmth. So crowding out, that's one set of reasons that it might be hard to live by your values. Another set is because living by a certain value involves doing a bunch of stuff that just might be hard to do in an environment. So for instance, being honest might involve me reflecting and seeing what I really believe about a thing. And then asking you, like knowing you well enough to say it, uh, clearly and carefully. And this is going to be harder in a noisy environment or an environment where I don't see you as I speak. It's going to be harder for me to be honest because it's going to be less, it's going to be harder for me to do the reflection step or harder for me to do the assessment about whether I'm communicating clearly. Uh, so these we call hard to do. These are the steps of living by a value. Some environments are more conducive to these, like make these steps easier and some harder. Let's take uh, that example of, of Twitter or, or you could use Facebook or Tinder if it's easier. How, how would that be redesigned to better, uh, or, or if you were in charge of that, of, you know, redesigning it, what, what could that look like to be better in conjunction with your values rather than your goals or preferences? Mm. I would love for virality to work very differently than retweet. 
Um, so the way I make my essays is I invite a small number of people. I write a draft and then I invite people to give me feedback. Ideally, I have like Zoom calls or kind of interactions with people about their comments or what they think, where they were confused. Um, I revise the thing. And then by the time I'm ready to share it, I have this group of people that's kind of bought in and they have all helped me shape this thing and they like it. And they have an idea of which of their friends or what they're, what in their scene it'd be useful for. So it's like this sort of process, unlike just like retweeting something, it's this process where something gets revised and um, the audience for it is refined and it goes from being an individual thing to a team thing. And none of that happens at the retweet button, right? It never becomes a shared concern. It's like, oh, I'll share this, but it's not like I'll share this and think about help, help shape its audience and reshape it and and so on i mean quote cheats you can you can sort of do a little bit of this but i think it could be much richer and so i would love for virality to be a kind of an expanded community not just in the order part of it is also in scale of intimacy like currently virality is just kind of whoever sees it might retweet it or not but if I could specify a set of people, like this is the starting group, they can change it and we can talk about it and then it'll grow. This yeah. would be um, much better for me. That's really interesting. While, while we're here, why don't you also recommend a, a, a product or UX change on, on Facebook and Tinder that you think would, would help achieve the same benefit of being more contextual or values? Yeah, I mean, so I'm sort of biasing this based on on my, I, I biased the last one based on my values of sort of self-expression on, on Twitter, but I'll take some more conventional values that are maybe more just like broadly relevant to social issues with these other examples. Um, for newsfeed, um, political discourse is a really big thing. Like a lot of people get in fights over shared links, right? There's this kind of like, um, are you owning the libs or... Um, <laughs> there's these different kind of left and right <laughs> fights yeah. and this happens a lot on Facebook newsfeed. And what doesn't happen is open-minded political discourse. So one of the things that I think, uh, newsfeed is particularly bad at. So there's a lot of things in the design of newsfeed that are going on there. One is that a link gets really big and the headline becomes the thing that's topicalized. Uh, like the, the news article is bigger than the text that you type, right? If you share a link. So you might have like a personal connection. Let's say I'm a Trump supporter and I'm sharing a link about um, coal and how it's important to support coal miners or something. And, and for this reason, Trump's going to make America great. Maybe what's important for me there is something about saving small town life in America. I live in a smaller town, industry moved away, everybody's poor, a lot of people are unemployed. It's really not working well, the small town anymore. And I have the idea that this, you know, it used to be a coal mining town or something. I have the idea that Trump will fix it. This is actually a story that a lot of people, including people on the left, could could kind of dig. And it would make them think. They'd be like, oh, 
what kinds of economic policies would support small town living? I don't think coal is the answer, but maybe there's other things that we could do to revitalize rural America. But what happens is just that the headline of the article gets really big. And then there's a bunch of comments. No one has the sense that they're in a room with the other commenters. Instead, you're always typing in an asynchronous relationship with everybody else, responding to other people without the sense that you're, that they are present or that you're in the room with them. And I think this is, this just sort of brings out the, the worst in people. So one thing that I would change would I, I'd be, I'd change the, the way the thread is displayed, like the way the topic is displayed. I'd try to get information from people posting a link about why they cared about it. And I'd make that big and the link small and the headline small. I would try to display the chat thread more like maybe IRC or a chat room where presence is a really big aspect. So there's like a row of faces with a sense that you're with people. Uh, ideally, even more like eye contact video. I'd surface more about the people and why they cared about the topic, if possible. All these things would make newsfeed better for open-minded political discourse. Yeah. And, and uh, how about Tinder? Tinder. Well, it's hard to pick like what value we should make Tinder better for. Well, I mean, the problem with dating apps is, you know, once someone's in a relationship, <laughs> they, they're off the app. And so I'm wondering if the business model should change where it's like, if you're in a happy relationship for like five, 10 years, you, you pay Tinder or something, you know? Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I don't know. You know. Maybe it's just a business model, but instead of like subscribing for, for, or, or you know, paying for a quantity of, of matches or something, maybe it, there's some fee if you get married or something, which I, I'd be happy to pay if I met. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think so many things about Tinder, Tinder is really like dating apps in general are, uncomfortably close to porn in their kind of business model and dynamics. Like somebody I was talking to recently was saying that they did a survey of Tinder users in Paris and they found that 4% of men had used Tinder and ended up in a relationship. I forget exactly what they're, how their metrics worked, but it was like something like 4% of men were being successful and 50% of women. And that kind of means those 4% of men are being very successful. (laughs) And the rest of the men are looking at images and hoping and maybe occasionally going on dates, but it doesn't really work out. And this is a, a real sad loss of time and attention. And yeah. So I think, I think that there's a lot, like if you were try if you're going to try to look at one way to sort of start with Tinder would be to be like, well, what, what's a way of dating that, that people really believe in what kinds of relationships? Cause relationships are having a relationship is a goal, but being open, being honest, having uh, an adventurous dating life, these things are values. Try Like some people are on Tinder or, do online dating with the value like connecting with a lot of different, seeing what I have in common with a lot of different people or connecting. And I think if Tinder were designed for that, like this kind of democratic value of, of uh, taking, finding the, 
the best in everyone along the way <laughs> instead of a goal of for Tinder, the business of maximizing swipes or for users of getting laid or distracting themselves or or finding a relationship. I think Tinder would end up surfacing different information. It would have a very different funnel. You'd want to encourage people to surface the kind of their quirks. I think if you wanted to to work on this um, connecting with a lot of different people and cherishing what's possible between us, this kind of value, I think you'd surface very different information, not the information that you could swipe left or right quickly with, but information that made you feel uh, like, wow, there's so many people that I could connect with and they're all so different and interesting. Whereas I think currently the information that's surfaced by Tinder is, is more about snap judgment. Yeah. Zoom, zooming out a bit, a post you, you wrote is uh, basically saying that if we could execute any, any person in history, it would be uh, David Hume because of sort of the, the facts values dichotomy or, or, or science values dichotomy. How would you sort of uh, expand on or edit as to why he's so pernicious? Oh yeah, I, I didn't I didn't publish that post, but it's cool that you found the Google Doc that it's uh, it's sitting in. I will publish it someday. Yeah, so Hume was kind of the originator of an idea that our value our values are made up, and they're just kind of how people feel about things. And if if people like uh, uh, if people like a, a, a piece of art, or if people think that something something is uh, terrible, like um, I don't know, pedophilia is terrible. Uh, this isn't so much like Hume just sort of started this idea. He didn't even really completely subscribe to it. He's very inconsistent in his writing, but he put forward the idea that maybe something like this idea that pedophilia is distasteful or that this Mona Lisa is a great work of art. This is really just a lot of people's feelings. And it's, or he used the word sentiment. This is just a matter of sentiment and there's nothing really real there. Like what's real is the facts, which is just like atoms um, and physical phenomenon. And then we put this extra layer of sentiment on it based on our feelings and we project value into the world. But value is really just people's feelings. And if this is true, then voting and markets are kind of the best we can do because uh, if if the value of something is just how people feel about it, then what can we do but have people kind of report their feelings, vote or, you know, bid on it or something. We do some kind of polling to determine the value of something. But what this doesn't include is like all of the deep thinking people do about what's important to them. Uh, it doesn't seem like you're feeling about taking this job or that job or moving to the country or staying in the city, it's not exactly a static thing. It's not just like how you feel about it. Uh, it changes based on reflection about what's really important to you. And so I think there's this substantial way in which uh, we actually figure out what's important to us. At the end of figuring it out, or as we figure it out, we know more about what's important to us. And this totally doesn't fit in to Hume's idea about values being just sentiment. 
it's more like values are more like facts where there's something to figure out. There's something that like, I don't know what's important to me. And then I think about it and I go for a long walk and I talk to some of my best friends and then I have a better idea of what's important to me. Hume's idea doesn't kind of fit with that, but it became very popular. And uh, I think Hume's thinking led to utilitarianism, led to a bunch of thinking that elevates markets as the best way of getting people whatever they happen to value. It led to a whole worldview that we still need to recover from. And has that view, is this view still mainstream in your view? Yeah, I think in philosophy, philosophy has moved past it. Um, just actually in the last 60 or so years. Uh, although utilitarianism is kind of popular in the rationalist scene, effective altruism scene, this kind of scene, it's no longer as popular as it was in the first half of the 20th century among philosophers. Most philosophers, there's this, it started with this guy, I forget his name, but there was an anecdote that a philosopher in the early 80s, Bond, I think, told about a guy who just, he loves to turn on radios. It's kind of like, does this mean that, is this the same as saying that turning on radios is important to him? And it doesn't. Like, there's a lot of things that we decide are important to us that we don't necessarily have positive feelings about. Like maybe caring for our aging parents or something. And this is something that kind of swept philosophy between the 70s, 80s, 90s, this view that actually there's a lot of substance to our values that goes way beyond our feelings and sentiment, but it hasn't caught up to the, to the public uh, yet. Like the, the view outside of philosophy is still very much in the, the Hume track, I think. Well, you mentioned the, the altruist effective altruist community and utilitarian. What do you think that community doesn't fully appreciate or, or misunderstands or, um, or broadly what are some of the underappreciated problems with utilitarianism as, as you see it? Yeah. So one of the reasons that we evolve values is because you can't decide everything. So also part of why the, this, Part of the switch away from utilitarianism is also uh, around this idea of bounded rationality and the foolishness of trying to figure out expected values to make rational choices about everything. Like um, there are some nerds that try to spreadsheet out everything in their life. Like, should I live here or should I, should this person, should this person be my friend or should this person be my friend? They'll make like spreadsheets. Should I date this person or this person that makes bread pizza or whatever? This is crazy. And it doesn't lead to good decisions because these are, because the number of variables that you'd have to kind of take into account, the number of columns in your spreadsheet and the formula that you'd have to invent ends up being so many columns and the formula is so arbitrary that it ceases to be a useful measuring stick. So I think that the the rationalists are kind of in this camp of spreadsheety people and they're not noticing when it makes sense to make a spreadsheet to make a life choice and when it makes sense to use feelings and values to make your life choice. 
and when you might need this sort of evolution of values, when, when the difference between value conflicts and their resolution through reflection, which amounts to kind of changing the spreadsheet formula rather than just figuring out the expected values of things more precisely. Um, they, they haven't recognized when, one, one way of thinking of this is switching from, like values are kind of heuristic about how to live improvisationally as opposed to the spreadsheet approach, which is a kind of a planning approach, a less improvisational approach to how to live. And there's, there's just different kinds of choices where one makes sense versus another, depending on how much uncertainty there is, unknowability, how many, what the dimensionality of the options being compared is and their attributes. And uh, so, yeah, I think this is what the rationalists are missing is that they're often trying to make decisions in very high dimensional spaces with large amounts of uncertainty. And for this, this sort of standard rational choice framework of expected value is actually a very bad way to operate. So when, when you, you know, hear people talk about treating their, you know, friendships or relationships, you know, like top of the funnel, like recruiting process or, uh, you know, people asking for sort of personal CRM, you know, uh, to, to manage those, those relationships, do you sort of roll your eyes and say you're somewhat, you're missing the point in that, you know, these worlds are fundamentally different and you shouldn't treat them remotely close or, or is there something that can be learned? You know, it depends on, on, on the dimensionality of, of what they're, they're trying to decide. If they're looking for someone, you know, like uh, when you're in line for a roller coaster at an amusement park, there's like a sign that says like, you should be this high, you should be like this tall and maybe no more than this tall or whatever. This way of uh, evaluating people makes perfect sense because you're evaluating somebody for like a one dimensional physical constraint where if they're too tall, they're going to get whacked in the head. If they're too small, they're going to fly out of the thing, right? So by all means, make a spreadsheet if you've got one dimension and (laughs) the consequences of being off on the dimension are really clear, then the spreadsheet's a good approach. If you've got like 20 really fuzzy dimensions that have to do with things like um, uh, interestingness or like really vague terms (laughs) that are not easily quantifiable, then your spreadsheet and funnel approach is just, you're just fooling yourself into thinking you're making a rational choice when really you're just making a much less well-informed choice than if you tried to think more about how you want to live, how you want to treat people, how you want to make choices like this, and less about uh, this kind of um, spreadsheety breakdown. Is this... um I guess I guess two independent questions. One is, is, is part of your view that we should have a more process oriented than results oriented approach? And the second question is, 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 is what you just talked about in terms of the vagueness, an example of sort of a complex versus a complicated problem. And these are, or system and these are complex systems and, and spreadsheets are for complicated systems. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Both of those are, are right. Um, and I guess the process uh, versus um, results thing is is more exactly what I was saying. There's some situations where you you can't have a results like a, a results an outcomes based analysis just doesn't work, and you have to say what's a process that will bobbing and weaving <laughs> eventually 
what's the process that we believe in and we'll give up on uh, focus on the outcome? What's the process that we believe in given what we know now? There's some places where only a process oriented approach works. And that those are the, the sort of values, places versus goals and expected outcomes places. And this, I think also there's, there's a correspondence between navigating complexity, which is more um, in the process and values kind of domain and navig- navigating the complicated where you can do more analysis and forecasting and so on. Totally. I do want to get into uh, to metrics. You, you had this talk a while ago of, you know, is anything worth maximizing? And it is, it is a conundrum, right? Where, you know, what measured, what's measured gets managed or sort of, you know, what matters is what people measure in terms of what people pay attention to. But in the paradox is what truly matters can't be measured. <laughs> um, and so, so the question, or the question, as we were just talking about, and so the question is, do you try to have better metrics for, for things or do you uh, hope or create systems to prioritize things that can't be, that can't be measured? Um, you sort of is better metric better than a bad metric or do you sort of, you know, throw the table and say, Hey, we're not going to measure this. And in a utopian society are a lot more things measured or are a lot more things not measured. How do you sort of wrestle with these, these questions of, of measurements and metrics? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a great question. To some extent time will tell. Uh, the only thing I could say now is that you absolutely have to do both. You need to change your metrics. It makes sense that I mean, there's no way to not have a metric when you have a really large system. Like, um, like let's say you run a city, you you can't somehow keep track of all the lives in the city. Um, if you care about, let's say, access to sanitation or hospitals or um, schools, you can't somehow just know if a million people live in your city how they're all doing and kind of wing it. You need to have these numbers that bundle up this information. So there's just no way to get out of metrics uh, for some kinds of processes at some kinds of scales. And in these cases, I think you should, it's the best kind of metric to have is a metric based on whether people are able to live in your city, let's say, by their individual values. I'm not saying that this is the only thing that should ever be measured, but I think that it's the closest you can get in a large scale metric to um, trying to measure what's actually whether what's happening is actually good. So one of the things that I, I teach people is how to do that, how to use surveys to monitor whether a large population is struggling to live by their values inside your social network or city or whether it's, it's going well for them. But I think that to design, to, to, to have an organization that um, addresses people's values, the values of, of users, the values of the employees. Um, you also need to move away from metrics for things like road mapping and promotions. For a lot of decision processes, it makes sense to uh, invent either processes that somehow have a way of reconciling values and metrics or values-based processes. It ends up being much more literary, much more like we thought about this and we decided what was important to do is to do this much more like a court decision or something where you write an opinion about what's important and less about like, well, this is the thing that's going to make 
this metric go up and to the right. So there's a mix of new, more values-oriented processes, but also metrics. And I think it's necessary to, it's always going to be necessary to do both, at least above a certain scale. And I think we're, we're going to continue to have very large scale social networks, very large scale systems on every level. And so we need better metrics and as well as more values driven process. And so uh, we were talking about earlier, like Facebook, Twitter, Tinder, what are, or you can take a different one if you want, what are different examples of KPIs that we should be optimizing for? And I, I guess, are there versions of different KPI, like the KPIs that they could optimize for that wouldn't result in a huge loss of profit, I guess? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. You know, Facebook likes to pull out um, Facebook groups uh, when they talk about meaningful social interactions. And there's a, a reason for that because a lot of community organization happens on Facebook groups and events. A lot of things that, that people um, do find really meaningful and life-changing and, uh, you know, uh, fr- new friendships form and, and so on. And there's all these, they, they like to give the example of a cancer survivor or cancer support groups on Facebook. They like to cherry pick stories <laughs> where things are going well, but there's something uh, of a real substance to that. There is a lot of, there are a lot of situations where people are able to treat each other on Facebook groups or at Facebook events there. These things help people live the way they want. And so you can measure that. Uh, the simplest thing to do as a metric would be to ask to survey users and say, you can say like, what are the meaningful kinds of interactions that happen on groups and how often has it happened to you recently? Or you can say, how do you want to treat people here in this group? What are the ways of living that events can, can support you in? How often recently has an event supported you in this way, in living this way? So all of these are metrics that are much better than typical engagement metrics for these kinds of social environments, online social environments. And I don't think that these things would be, would, would be particularly impactful in terms of profit. I think that this kind of KPI is worst for company, for organizations like, like YouTube or Facebook video where a really significant portion of their traffic is people doing doing things that they maybe actually don't really believe in. Um, but that's great. Then just pivot your your operation to supporting people with something that they really do believe in. Yeah. And how do we think about sort of metrics in our personal or or family or group life? Not in the sense of well, partially because you know social networks bring metrics anyways uh, or quantify things. You know, MySpace, for example, used to have like the top eight. So now we, we had to quantify who was in the top eight and stuff. How should we think about that? But also in the context of, you know, how do you prioritize things that you don't don't measure? Or So do you measure knowing that the measures are somewhat futile or do you resist the, the measurement but uh, prioritize regardless? Yeah, I don't really have strong uh, opinions of this. Like one of the things that I... I think about a lot for my own values is um, is who who I want to be 
working with, um, hanging out with in 10 years and 20 years. Like, um, yeah, who, who's in my life for the long haul? And I don't know, you can think of this as a kind of a quantification or something, but it really serves me as a value, um, guiding me as I decide who to embrace and do things with. So there are ways in which a a certain kind of quantification or ranking or something might actually help with my values. And there are also things that might undermine it. It's, it's really like um, I make my own metrics for my medium posts because I, I don't like the numbers that medium surfaces, but I have a spreadsheet that I made that calculates different numbers that are sort of my, my estimates of, of how many people's um, uh, uh, lives were changed or work practices were changed based on this article or that article. Like I have my own little measures of impact and these measures of impact are much closer to what I value and they help me decide whether to write about this thing or that thing. So there's a, and these are numbers, they're assessments, but they're assessments that I've designed to help me with the particular like the reason that I'm writing and the the values that I have around my writing, uh, which are different than the values that a, a marketer might have. And say more a little bit about the metrics that, that you have around your writing. So I don't care about reach, but I do care about reach within certain demographics. For instance, it's, it's anything worth maximizing, which is about metrics. I really wanted this to reach people at large tech companies that have some influence over product metrics, right? So this is a kind of reach that I care much more about than other kinds of reach for that, for that essay. And the ideal thing would be to measure would be reports of um, change metrics in the field. And I got a lot of them at Apple, at Facebook, where teams were actually able to, they read the thing <laughs> and then they, um, they changed something. And I can back out from that essay, like, okay, well, how can I, can I, how, what are ways that I can estimate whether it's reaching the right target population? What are ways that I can estimate, you know, is, is what's the ratio of, uh, like views to full reads to like comments to like people changing their practice? How would I imagine that might differ from essay to essay? How, is it is it fairly constant, for instance, that if this many people comment, this smaller number that's a ratio of that will report um, a change in their life? If I random sample a bunch of the commenters, can I verify that there's a constant ratio between commenters and this kind of impact on work or living? And if I do find such a ratio, then I can just use a multiplier. Otherwise, maybe it's a more complicated relationship. Anyway, I have a spreadsheet where I try to figure this all out and do this for a lot of different essays that have different target audiences and different kinds of impact. And looking at all these numbers really does help me figure out what to focus on, what to write next. That makes sense. And so, you know, I'm curious... Before this podcast, we were talking about, you know, some of the overlaps and differences with the sort of, you know, game B, you know, sense-making web you know, movement that uh, that you, you know, are involved with, but also, uh, you know, human systems slightly differs from. 
and, and one of the main differences you talked about how is that you see yours as, I don't want to say more of an incremental, um, but more able to work with the existing system or be the next evolution of the existing system. Whereas the, some of the game B folks are maybe calling for a revolution, so to speak. Why don't you un- unpack or edit a little bit of that? Yeah. So first of all, I think I, I come from that scene and I would say that they gave me the questions for which human systems is kind of like the, my answer um, or our answer. So I'm super grateful and there's not really a substantial disagreement. It's more like they're just asking a lot of the right questions and I never would have um, developed this approach if I hadn't had those questions in mind. Um, I think many of the people in this scene that you'll be talking with would kind of agree that they have more questions than answers. Like when Daniel talks about, Daniel Schmackenberger talks about his generator functions and the thing that's wrong with the current kind of societal operating system and what we need next. He's just kind of listing a set of requirements for how society would need to look different to be ecologically sustainable, to not, he he uses the word (laughs) self-terminate to not self-terminate. So he has this list of requirements, but he doesn't really have like a way of answering, like saying, Oh, what would fulfill those requirements? And he doesn't really have uh, a way of leading designers to design new systems that fulfill those requirements. So I think human systems is such an answer. I think there's other stories like permaculture would be another example of something that successfully leads to new designs. And that's what I have that they don't have. It's maybe just like not the job they took on. Like I went from that kind of framing towards this question. Well, what kinds of thinking or training or analysis would lead to the invention of social networks, democratic systems, market systems, and so on that, that address the requirements that have been identified by people like Daniel Schmackenberger. So, so yeah, that's, I think where we fit in where we, where I disagree. Again, it's not so substantial. I, I think that Daniel may not realize how much people already try to live by their values and struggle to live by their values. And it's just that we don't have such supportive systems for that. And he may not realize uh, yet, but he will soon, because I'm working on an essay about it, <laughs> that uh, systems that help us live by our values have, I think, a strong claim to being game B systems in their terminology. So I think it's more just a, a matter of kind of time to integrate and debate this question of whether what Daniel and Jordan, Jim call game B is the same as what is delivered by values-based design, what's measured by these kinds of metrics that I've been talking about. I don't think we even disagree about that. Uh, I think it's like a kind of a discussion that is going to be up and coming. Yeah. Another spot where I think you do disagree is, and not necessarily with, with them, but I guess with other folks who sort of, you know, earlier we were talking about, the spiral dynamics and Sir Robert Keegan's stages of development. Um, basically, I think the crux of your disagreement is sort of with any system that implies that some people are more, you know, advanced than others, even if temporarily. 
or well, you know, it, there's it makes sense that there'd be a sort of natural aversion to that. I guess I'm I'm curious as to what, what's what's the argument against because there also seems to be a natural version of like hey everyone's at the same everyone's at the same stage or same level of understanding when you unpack what, why you either find that problematic less so problematic incorrect I guess or unhelpful mm. yeah one thing that I like about the preferences view in economics is that it makes room for a great diversity of different interests and uh, pursuits and also in the so part of the preferences view is is the idea that people have different not just tastes but capacities like that you might you might be able to enjoy a forest that I've never learned to to enjoy but I might be able to enjoy a piece of classical music that you've never learned to enjoy. And I might be able to make something out of a social situation that is just not your thing. But for me, I can turn it into something really productive and good that suits my preferences. So I really like this sort of emphasis on diversity and and the idea that people who have very different lives might just be kind of turned on to different things, might just have different pursuits or different skills that they've developed about dealing with different kinds of lives. Maybe a good example here would be like uh, monogamy versus polyamory. You know, someone might like to claim, oh, that like uh, you could, you could easily find someone to claim that either one is superior and the other one is just childish, right? You'd find a monogamous person who's like, oh, polyamory is just another word for being a player. You'd find like some Maybe some people that be into game B are like, oh, well, polyamorous people have left the childishness of jealousy and the feeling that you own your partner. They've left that behind and they're more evolved or whatever. But a view that I'm much more sympathetic to is um, maybe there's different sets of skills that are super valuable in both cases. And maybe it's quite hard to learn either. And there's a ton of wisdom that I could learn about monogamy from people that have been married for 50 years. And there's also maybe some wisdom that I could learn about polyamory from people that have been in polyamorous relationships for a while. And maybe to some extent, I kind of have to choose, like, because it's hard, would be super hard to be super good at both. But this doesn't mean that there's a developmental step here. Um, I think that story can be told in many, many, many areas. And I think this leads to a much rosier picture of humanity. <laughs> like, it's so sad, especially for the people that think their polyamory is superior. You know, these people imagine that they're in such a small group of like hyper advanced, enlightened beings, because like, very few people are polyamorous, right? So like, they're like, they think of themselves as part of this tiny little elite, which is just such a sad, with nothing to learn from all the other people. This is just such a sad way to live. It's, it seems like such a richer way to live and a richer uh, kind of society to build, to imagine that we're all wise in different ways, that we've all gone on different kinds of missions and gained different kinds of 
wisdom. And, and they were also all fools in many areas of our lives and have a ton to learn from probably everybody on our block. This just seems so much more appealing, both as a, a way to live personally and as a framework for designing than the idea that there's a, I don't know, in Keegan, I think that the, there's supposed to be like, I don't know if it's 1% level fives <laughs> in all of these different, you know, ranking systems the the elite is this like tiny portion of the population. And this is just such a sad way to imagine yourself and to live. Totally. And, and so maybe we can close on, on what you think is next for, for, for the, this movement or, or broader movement. Uh, you know, you're about to come with this post and, and reconciling a bunch of, you know, human systems, game B stuff, but in order for this to really you know, take off, you know, next year. Or so like, what do you, what do you think needs to happen or what do you think will happen? We need to like, I think that there is this sort of bootstrapping around values, articulacy and values based design and people moving from building meaningless uh, or goal driven strategic workplaces and you know, b- building systems that crowd out meaning moving over to, to really paying a lot of attention to values and building systems that support them and uh, support meaning. This, there's a sort of a snowball-y bootstrapping aspect to this, and a lot of it has to do with values articulate. So you don't need everybody to be values articulate, but you need uh, to at least be surveying people in a way that kind of gets at their values and what's meaningful to them. Um, and so there needs to be at least enough people asking these questions. Um, and so we're trying with human systems to train a lot of people to be articulate about their values and to run these kinds of surveys and metrics and so on. And there'll be a point we have, we've trained about 250 people so far and this is great. And it's a wonderful community. There'll be a point where it escapes beyond us and we don't need to, to train people because that, you know, enough people will be out in the world doing this kind of work that it'll be kind of catching. And then there'll be a point after that where there, where, the, where there's more of a possibility to migrate into a kind of an ecosystem that's very meaning aware, very values aware, so that you can, you can just decide to use these kinds of social networks to be parts of these kinds of communities to live in this way. And, uh, so these are kind of the inflection points that I see. Uh, one is like a, enough of a population of values articulate people. And the, then the one after that is um, a, an enough of a rich ecosystem of values aware designs that it really feels like something you can, you can move into. Totally. Is there anything else that we, we didn't get to on this pod that you think uh, would be super important? I guess I, I will stay for, for, for the listeners uh, sign up for our classes if um, if you're up for that, if you're up for this kind of structured experience. If you're not, I've got all these essays, but also you can download the activities that we do in classes, all of our worksheets and group processes and something, and our, the games we play, the group practices that we do in class are also available online, and you can just do them with your friends, do the worksheets and stuff on your own. Um, and, and, uh, this is really what helps people gain the skills we teach is to do exercises and activities, not just to read. Yeah. It's very game driven. You have a lot of different exercises and, 
and things that that people could do. Well, uh, Joe, this has been a fantastic podcast. Thank you so much for for coming on, and I'd encourage listeners to check out the Human Systems. Where, where, where would you point them? The Notion. Uh, yeah, the the Notion is great. Um, you can get there by going to human-systems.org and then clicking learn more. But just that actually any button on that like front page we have will will jump into our Notion. Yeah. Perfect. Joe, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Sure thing. Thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 